All right. If you have your Bibles tonight, and I hope that you do, if you'll find the book of Malachi with me, the last book of the Old Testament. And uh, Malachi, as we have finished this series on the minor prophets, um, they might be minor in their classification, but have been full of amazing promises and wonderful things that God's Word teaches. I think when you read the book of Malachi, if you're familiar with the Old Testament and you get to the end of it, you can almost think, how discouraging. How God started everything in the book of Genesis, how He loved the children of Israel, how He loved the Jewish people, how He blessed them and worked through them and and did all of these great things, but yet then they rebelled. And God would send correction and they would repent and they'd come back and God would bless them and then in just a very short period of time they would rebel, run from God. God would bring correction to them and then they would suffer and pray and then He'd respond in love. And and what we come to here is about a hundred years after the children of Israel have exited from captivity, come home to Israel, And most Jews at that time thought this is when God is really going to work. God's going to set up His messianic kingdom. The the, the Messiah is going to reign and rule over us. But yet, they have fallen back into the same mess that they had all those years before. And so the first three chapters of the book of Malachi are God having a conversation through Malachi with them about These are the things that you're doing again. This is a reminder of the wickedness that you are living in. But chapter 4 is God saying, but one of these days, I'm going to make everything right. I am going to fulfill all the promises that I made to you. If you remember some of those promises, one, He made promises to Abraham. He made promises to David. He made promises about the land. And if you've ever been promised something that was good, you probably looked with anticipation. No kid wakes up on Christmas morning and is like, well, this is just going to be bad. I, kids stay up all night, right? I just can't wait for what's coming tomorrow. I can't wait for what I'm going to get. I can't wait for what it's going to be like. I, I just can't wait. If you're a Jewish person at this time, you have watched your history and you've watched your family and you've watched your forefathers and it's always this cycle. And the question is, when does the world stop being hurt by sin? And I think that's probably the same for us. All of us can look around in our families, in our communities, and just say, man, I am tired of dealing with sin and the consequences of it. In our personal life, the things that we struggle with, the consequences of sin grow weary in our spirit. And so I'm going to very quickly look at these six things, but then I want to spend most of our time on chapter 4 talking about what is going to happen. When I read about the Jewish people at this time, I can't help but tie it back to like King Saul. If you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 16... King Saul loses the kingdom. And in chapter 16 it says, And the Spirit of the Lord left Saul. And a troubling spirit was sent to Saul from the Lord. 
And in the very next verse, the servants of Saul said, that spirit is sent to trouble him from the Lord. What we don't think about is that King Saul most likely was still king for over two decades after that possibly. He was the king by title, but he was doing it alone. And at this point, the children of Israel are still God's people. He's still going to fulfill those promises, but he says, you're on your own. You're you're going to do this in your own mess that you've made. We know after the book of Malachi, there are 400 years of silence until John the Baptist shows up on the scene. The Lord Jesus Christ appears. But what can we learn from these six accusations that God makes to the children of Israel? The first is right here in chapter 1. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord. And the response from the people in verse 2 is, Yet you say, in what hey have you loved us? He says, I chose you, your fathers, your descendants, Jacob, over Esau, to be the nation that I would bless. How true is it that sometimes when we fail, when we stumble, when we're going through hardship, that we can say, God, I know you love me, but boy, I wish you could show it more. Or God, I know you've been good to me, but I really could use a blessing. And so what happens here is they begin to doubt the love and goodness of God. Tonight I want you to know that if you're not careful and I'm not careful, when life gets difficult, when things get challenging, we can begin to question, God, I know you loved me enough to die for me, but Lord, I feel like I'm alone. The second thing we see from this uh, book that they were accused of is in verse 6. They begin to worship God by going through the motions. In verse 6 it says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? God says, you're not honoring me in your worship. And they say, well how have we despised your name in verse 6? But at verse 7 it says, your offer defiled food on my altar. By saying, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the Lord and the table of the Lord is contemptible. And he goes on to say, instead of bringing the best animals for sacrifice, you're bringing the animals that are left over. You're bringing the blind animals. You're bringing the animals with blemish. You're saying, God, whatever we bring you is good enough for you. It's really kind of like when we come to worship. Well, I'm just doing God a favor that I'm here. I'm just doing God a favor that I put a little money in the plate. I did God a favor by going to Sunday school. When what we offer God should be the very best that we have, whether it's our ability to teach, our ability to sing, whether it's our ability to work in children's ministry, if God has given me the opportunity and the abilities, I ought to give and give of my best. I know that not everyone has the same quality of singing voice. I know not everyone is the same quality of teacher. But if God asks you to do something, there is no way in my personal opinion that you should ever do it half-hearted. You never should just show up for Sunday school and say, well, I didn't pray, I didn't prepare, I didn't study. I'm just here to offer God whatever's left over. Same way when we sing. Jamie shouldn't show up on Sunday morning and he doesn't and say, well, I just don't know what songs we should do. Why don't we just pick a few? Right? We'll just just pick whatever's left over. We're not going to practice. We're not going to prepare. We're just going to wing it when we get here. 
That should never be how we approach God. We ought to be praying. We ought to be preparing. We ought to be showing up saying, God, whatever I have is yours. God, whatever you've given me, I will honor you with it. The third accusation goes on, and we'll have to skip over uh, to chapter 2. And he's talking about the priest, the religious leaders of the day. And he begins to talk to them about how they are wicked. That God gave them to the people to help them. If you ever notice this Bible that is open, it's always open to the same verse. And it's a verse that talks about when God's people really want a shepherd to lead them, if they will pray about it, that God will give them shepherds after His own heart. And that should be your prayer. Whether it's me, whether it's someone else, God, send us a man that will love us like you love us. Send us a man who will preach to us like your word speaks to us. Send us, God, someone who will lead us and guide us the same way that you would lead us and guide us. And what God says is, you've messed it all up. You've not taught the Word of God. You've not lived the Word of God. You have made a mess of this. And the people suffer. One of the ways the priests had done that, they refused to preach. They refused to call out the children's sin in the nation of Israel. And so you look at this in verse 10, and he begins to say marriage. So God takes the worship of him very serious. God takes His love toward us very serious. But in verse 10, He takes marriage very serious. Starting in verse 10, He says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of our fathers? And they say, well, what do you mean that we're not honoring the covenant? Down in verse 14, Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You see, what we know is the Jewish people decided to marry all of these foreign women. And when they didn't pan out the way they thought they should, they're like, we'll just throw them to the curb. God doesn't care. They're not Jewish. They're not the same religion as us. We'll just throw them away and find a better model. God says, no, you've made a covenant with them. Marriage matters. Marriage is sacred. Marriage is special. So when you begin to look at the problems that we have today in our own country, in our own churches, we have people who struggle with the love of God. We have people who refuse to worship God with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have a generation of people who don't see the value of marriage. Tonight I want to encourage you, if you are married to someone who is not loving Jesus, and you are trying, and you are forgiving, and you are staying, and you are doing all that you can do to make it work, look up here, you are honoring God just as much as two people who have got it figured out. God never holds you accountable for the sins of your spouse. They might be a scoundrel, they might be a a phony, but I am telling you, God will honor your commitment. And that day comes when they break those vows and the Word of God gives you permission. Look up here, it is not your fault. God says the fault here is by putting a woman away for no reason other than you can. The fourth accusation, it goes on and says in verse 17, says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. 
And their response, in what way have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Oh, where is the God of justice? Now they're throwing a pity party. party. Well, the wicked are being blessed. Why are these people who don't love God being blessed? We should be the ones being blessed. What they're saying is they don't want God showing mercy on other people. They want God to judge and correct everybody other than them. We see this very same teaching in Jesus when He says, what, remove the plank from your own eye before you remove the speck from your brother's? It's not wrong to want God to fight your battles for you. It's not wrong for God to, for want God to show mercy to you. But if you want God to show mercy to you, you better be willing for Him to show mercy to others. And so he lists all of these things. The last thing we see there is this dispute. It goes on in chapter 3 though, and it gives us a little bit of hope if you're a child of Israel at this time. He says in verse 3, though, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. We know that the New Testament says this is John the Baptist. We know that even though God is telling the children of Israel they've lost their way, they've missed out on all these blessings, they've made a mess of things, that God is not done with them. It is a reminder to us that while we might fail God, while we might struggle in our walk with God, while we might disappoint God, that if we are His, He never gets to a point and just says, well, you're beyond hope. You're beyond saving. You're beyond redemption. And so it goes on in this chapter, in the end of it again, but then He lists the last two disputes that He has with the people. Starting in chapter 3, verse 6, it says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. In verse 7, Yet from the days of your father you have gone away from my ordinances, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, in what way shall we return? God says, you just will not listen. But if you'll just repent, I will draw near to you. God says that you're still wandering when you don't have to. God says you're still running from me when you don't have to. And all it takes for me to work and to move in your life is for you to have the humility to turn and say, Lord, we need you. Lord, we're turning from our wicked ways. You see that promise in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, that was specifically given for the nation of Israel. All they had to do when they wandered from God, when they strayed from God, when they struggled, was just to admit to God that they had sinned. And God promised to what? To hear from heaven. To heal their lands. And then the last accusation, it's robbing God. Starting in verse 8, will, you rob, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offering. You say, Jake, a tithe was the Old Testament law to the children of Israel, to them and them alone. Well, if you remember, Abraham, before the law was given, gave a tenth. 
If you remember, before the law was given, Jacob gave a tenth. Eighteen times in the law, the tithe is mentioned. Jesus in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23 said, What I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. The founder of Kellogg's was a great Christian man, and he said, I don't believe in the tithe. But he says, I believe it's a wonderful place to start. You see, as Christians, we don't look to get to that. We realize that's just the start. And as God blesses us, we are to give more in a generous way. That's why the early church in the book of Acts would sell all that they had in certain circumstances. They were led to give offerings to support missionaries. But it is one of the only times when money is involved when God says, put me to the test. You will say, Jake, it's wrong to test God. You're right in certain areas. But God said this. Listen to what it says in verse 9. You are cursed with a curse. You have robbed me, even this whole nation. So he's talking about that it's robbery anytime, but it's especially robbery in this nation. Bring all the tithes into the stored house that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this. And what does the very next sentence says in five words? Says the Lord of hosts. God says, put me to the test. See if you can outgive me. See if you can outbless me. God says, you can't do it. God says, there's no way. Look what it goes on to say. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And we have to be very careful here. Because the name it and claim it television preacher would say, well, if you give, God has to give. And I believe that God gives. What he's talking about here especially is crop. What else are you going to grow and bring into a storehouse? God says, I can send the rain, I can send the blessing, I can send the harvest that can overflow what you can store. God says, I promise that. I believe that can be spiritually. I believe that can be emotionally. I believe it can be financially. And you say, well, Jake, I disagree with that. That's all right. I, I really want to prove you wrong. So look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. That's going to get me in trouble, but that's not anything other than normal. And all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a delightful land says the Lord of hosts. God says, watch how I can bless Israel. Watch how I can bless your nation. While I believe the tithe was pre-law and post-law, I believe God's promises are the same. I believe God's promises are the same. And then one more thing he says in verse 13, your words have been harsh against me. But you say, with what words have we spoken? And God says in verse 14, you have said it is useless to serve God. He says, you've just genuinely felt in your heart that there is no benefit from serving me. There's no benefit from following me. There's no benefit to giving to me. He says, that's wrong. 
And so tonight, wherever you fit in this category, maybe you struggle with one of these, maybe you struggle with all of them, maybe you don't struggle with any of them, it is a reminder that God loves us enough to call out our sin. God loves us enough to say, hey, I love you, but there are some things that just aren't right in your life. Verses 16 through 18, we won't look at them for the sake of time. It is talking about the fact that all this needs to be written down. All of this needs to be written down so that it can be talked about, so they can be read, so it can be studied, so it can be prayed over, so that it can be applied to our life. He says, don't forget what God's done for you. Don't forget what God is doing for you. And don't forget what God will do for you. We see the same pattern throughout the Old Testament when they're told to put stone altars so that what the next generation can see. That's why I think it is so important when we have these monumental dates like a 200th anniversary. Coming up when we have our 205th anniversary. When we come up and have our 210th anniversary, if the Lord tarries, that we ought to celebrate and we ought to be reminding ourselves of what our history is. Because if the Lord tarries long enough, we're going to be gone. And there will be a generation of people that rise up. And the greatest danger they can be in is when they forget about the Lord's faithfulness. The Lord's provision. How the Lord provided. How the Lord took care of. How the Lord showed up. How the Lord showed out. How the Lord has done all of these things. How the Lord has built His church. How the Lord has changed lives. And we wake up in a state of blessing like we have in America. And we forgot what it took to get here. We forgot the God who got us here. And a generation of half-infidel liberals have woke up and said, we're entitled to all of this. And they forget that generations of men have fought and women and died for this great country. Generations of men and women gave up all that they had to help with the foundation of this nation. And that's what is happening in churches across America. The last chapter, and I'll be very quick here, talks about the great day of the Lord. The great day of what God is going to do for the Jewish people. He tells them here that even though the kingdom is not where it should be, they're not living how they should, that there is going to come a day when God is going to make it all like it should. Starting in verse 1, there's only six verses, so just bear with me. For behold, the day is coming. He says, look to the future for what's going to happen. Burning like an oven, there's a judgment coming. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. I believe what he's talking about is the tribulation period. That seven year period that we're studying about on Wednesday nights when the Lord turns His judgment loose on a wicked world that hates the Jewish people, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. He's talking about the Messiah. He calls Himself in the Old Testament the root and the branch. He goes on in verse 2 and says, But you who fear Me, fear My name. The Son of Righteousness shall rise. That is an event, but it is also talking about a person. Most scholars believe that is the day at the end of the tribulation period where Jesus Christ comes and destroys the Antichrist. 
comes and destroys the false prophet, throws them and their army into the lake of fire and binds Satan for the 1,000 years. Look what it goes on to say right after that. The healing in his wings. That word for wings is not what you think of as a bird. It is actually a word that is used many times for the hem of a garment. Some Bible commentators believe when you remember when the woman with the flow of blood could just reach out and touch the of his garment, she was what? That he was healed. And when Jesus comes again and sets up that earthly 1,000 year reign, that there will be great healing. There will be great times of peace and prosperity. God's people will have the wounds and the struggles will all be taken away. He goes on in that same verse and says, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. He's saying your blessings are going to be so much you're going to get fat and sassy. You say, Jake, why are you fat and sassy? I'm just getting a head start, all right? That's a joke. Gluttony's a sin. I'm just kidding, all right? But that's what he says. He says, you're going to be so blessed during this period. It is going to be like anything you've never seen before. You're going to be blessed in such a way that the whole world is going to look to you and say, look at what God has done for His people. It goes on in verse 3 though. It says, you shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. You say, well, how do we know this hasn't already applied? Have you looked at how the nation of Israel is being treated? You say, well, these promises apply to the church. Have you watched how the church is treated? The church is persecuted. The church is fought against at every turn by the forces of evil. We win. There's no doubt about that. But we are not experiencing these promises. Why? Because it's going to come when Jesus reigns on this earth. In verse 4 it goes on and says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb, that's just Mount Sinai, for all of Israel. He says, don't forget, these promises are for all the tribes. All of the tribes. And if you've read the book of Revelation with us, he talks about what? The twelve tribes and the evangelists from every tribe doing the work of God. He goes on in verse 5 and says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Some people look at this and say that's why we believe that Moses and Elijah will be the two prophets in the book of Revelation. Some people say it's Enoch and Elijah. If you remember, both of those men had a powerful experience with God on Mount Sinai. If you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus had the visitors from heaven who it was... We can read about these in Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, that there is coming a day, and look in verse 6, and He will turn. He will cause to repent. He will cause them from running from Him to Him. And look what it says, the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. He's just saying on that day, the children of Israel are going to recognize who they belong to. We read that in the book of Revelation. When the abomination happens in the book of Daniel, that the children of Israel realize they've been fooled by the Antichrist. And a worldwide revival breaks out. 
the nation of Israel who God has promised all of these wonderful blessings to will finally begin to experience them. Now they're going to go through three and a half years of literal hell on earth during the tribulation period, that second half. But he says, at the end of that time, something's going to happen. An event like any other event that's ever happened, your king is coming. And when he comes, the Bible says he will destroy everything that opposes him. And that day, he says, when Jesus steps his foot on Jerusalem to rule and reign, you say, Jake, do you really believe it's a 1,000 years? I do. The book of Revelation says six times in chapter 20, 1,000 years, 1,000 years. You say, what if it means a long period of time? Then why didn't God say long period of time? But six times he used specifically 1,000 years. I'm not a real smart person. You guys know that. Some of you went to high school with me. But if you write the same thing six times in six different verses right in a row, it's probably what? Important and it's correct. And so what he says there is for this period of time, the nation of Israel, the people of God who come back with the Lord are going to enjoy prosperity and peace and the presence of God like any other time. And it is going to be wonderful. You say, Jake, how does this apply to me? And I'll be done. How many times can we believe the lies that Satan says we're not good enough, we've not done enough, we've made too many mistakes? I struggle with that. I struggle with every time I make a mistake, Satan or my, my, my sinful nature, it, I just pile it on. Trust me, no matter how hard you are on me, I can promise you I will be harder on me than you will. It's a a quality that I struggle with. I struggle with being forgiven. I struggle with the fact that God really could love someone like me sometimes. I know you don't have that, but I do. But for the children of Israel who have struggled and suffered and failed and fallen, they finally get this promise that even though you've got all this baggage, I'm going to make it all okay. Even though you failed me so many times, I'm still faithful. And the greatest promise, I think, of all of God's Word is the fact that He is faithful. Even when we're not faithful. Even when we do things that we look back and said, man, I know that didn't please God. I know that didn't honor God. I know I've not been faithful. And God says, but I am. My word is still true. My promises are still real. And when I promised you that I made you brand new, I made you brand new. When I promised to forgive your sins and to forgive you of your sins, that's what I did. When God promised to write our name in the Lamb's book of life, that is what He did. Friends, it should be a reminder to us to always keep our eyes on Him. Because even through our failures and fears and disappointments, He can still work if we'll let Him. Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. I thank You, Lord, that while Your Word points out the faults, the sins, the mistakes... Lord, that the Old Testament finishes with a promise of what you're going to do. Lord, thank you, just like the book of Revelation, 
through all the heartache, through all the pain, through all the judgment, it ends with great hope that all who thirst can come. Lord, that we will be with you forever in peace and perfection. Lord, that you are preparing a mansion for each of us. Lord, that there is a new heaven and a new earth. And Lord, we will be in your presence forever. Father, help us to remember that when we stumble. Help us, Lord, as a church. Help us as families. Help us as individuals, God, to be reminded always of your unfailing love toward us. Lord, we ask it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.